This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more audiobooks and other content, please visit reconstructionistradio.com. Book title, Church Shift. Author, Sunday at Elijah. Published by Charisma House. Copyright, 2008. Narrated by Jason Garwood. Chapter 7. Go to the least of these. One of the hardest lessons I ever learned about ruling my promised land is that God usually starts at the bottom of society, not the top. He loves to serve the least of these, Matthew 25, 40, not the leaders. When Christ was born, the angels went to shepherds, not Caesar. Jesus ministered to the poor, not the well-fed. If you really want to build the kingdom of God, start by serving the people who are considered the least important and least valuable around you. When I completed my journalistic studies in Belarus, communism was just crumbling, and I and other Christians had begun taking the gospel message to the streets more boldly. It was an exciting time of new freedoms, but the old powers had not lost their sting. Because of my religious activities, the government asked me to leave Belarus. I resisted strongly in prayer, but God said to me clearly and distinctly, Leave Belarus. I protested, No, Lord, this is my promised land. I cannot leave. I had sown my life there for seven years. Now it appeared that God wanted to send me back to Africa. Finally, I gave up the fight. I decided that if the Lord wanted to use me in Africa, that was his decision. I was heartbroken, but obedient. But God didn't want to send me to Africa after all. Rather, he opened a new door for me to come to Ukraine. I got a call from a television station in Kiev that needed a journalist who spoke Russian. My fiancé, Bose, a Nigerian student whom I had met in Russia, agreed to join me there. I started my journalism career in Kiev, helping to produce and script shows for this pioneering television station. I was having much early success, but after only a year in Kiev, I felt God nudging me to begin another church. I didn't want to go down that road again. Every time I started a work, God called me away from it. For three months, I wrestled with God. Every time I prayed, I heard these words, You have to start a church. At last, I asked him, Why do I need to start a church? Why is it so essential? Then God told me something that set the foundation for my life ever since. He said, Here in Ukraine, I want to raise up strong, large churches with many thousands of members for the purpose of spreading the gospel throughout the whole world. In the same way the Soviet Union planted communism around the world, so I will use the nations of the former Soviet Union to take the good news everywhere. I was dumbfounded because the largest church in Ukraine at that time had only 700 people. But the Lord kept impressing on my heart that he wanted me to train reaper warriors to bring in the final harvest, especially in China and the nations of the Arab world. His glory would come to the land of Ukraine as he used the nation to help gather in the final harvest. He said I hadn't even started my ministry yet. This time, he would not take me away from my church as he did earlier. This church would be my home base for the ministry he called me for. I had arrived in my promised land. This was what the Lord had been preparing me for. I felt certain that the destinies of many people depended on how I would respond to God. I did not quit my journalism job at first, but I knew it was no longer my calling. Journalists always spread bad news. I was now called to spread the good news. 
my mind turned to the strategy I might use to accomplish the goal God had set before me of building a large church in Europe. I was only in my mid-twenties, but I made an announcement on television that anyone who wanted to study the Bible could come to my house, and I gave the address. I was hoping to attract professors and students from the local university. I envisioned having a church full of rich and powerful people who would get saved and do great things for God. I was disappointed when one of the first people to arrive was Natasha, an alcoholic. She was captivated by the message of the gospel, though at first she understood little of it. She simply felt joy being with us. The handful of others who showed up the first time were also simple people with alcohol and drug problems. They looked old and dejected. This happened again the next week and the next. Nobody came but a handful of derelicts. I redoubled my efforts and stood on street corners handing out invitations to normal people. It was strange for a black man to stand on the street corner inviting people to church. Nobody responded. I became more and more disillusioned. I didn't even know what to do with the few down-and-outers who came to services. Finally, I went home and prayed, God, you told me I would build a megachurch for you. Why is nobody coming? I decided not to sleep that night until I had an answer. At 3 a.m., God led me to Mark chapter 12, verse 37, which says that, quote, the common people heard him gladly, end quote. That sentence pierced my heart like a burning shaft. I realized God had sent his friends to me, and I was turning up my nose at them. God began to minister to me and said, Many people think that serving me means preaching from the pulpit. That is not my understanding of ministry. Preaching and church ministries are just tools and instruments you can use. But ministry is really about touching people. Get rid of your tie and jacket. Go out of your pulpit. Ministry is not about putting on your suit and handing out invitations and advertisements and expecting people to come hear you at church. Who are you, especially in this society? You are expecting people to go out of their way to come listen to you. They will never do it. If you were one of them, you wouldn't cross the street to listen to a Nigerian pastor either. How do you expect them to do that? You're not playing basketball or something else they want to see. And you want them to let you teach them how to live right? Yes, there is prejudice in this society, but that's not the only problem. You are part of the problem. Your understanding of church ministry is faulty. I was weeping. God's message to me continued, Take those ideas of ministry out of your mind. If you want to serve me, be like me. The ordinary people, the outcasts, the poor, the down and out, the drunkards all felt welcomed by me. That's why I said I was naked and nobody clothed me. That is ministry to me. If you can take care of them, you will take care of me. If you love them like I love them, you will love me. If I can trust you with them, then in the years to come, I will also be able to trust you with ordinary people and the elite, powerful, strong, and wealthy. But if I can't trust you with the naked and hungry, I won't be able to trust you with anybody. My mind changed that night. All my life I had thought, if I could only preach well and be eloquent and anointed, I would fulfill God's will. But God's revelation blew apart my conception of ministry. I saw that if I could make ordinary people feel good around me, I'd be like Jesus. I decided then to become trustworthy with the down-and-outers, the outcasts, the unlovables, and the untouchables. Breakthrough People asked me where my breakthrough in ministry started. 
It wasn't in learning and absorbing the Russian culture and language, though this gave me invaluable tools. It wasn't learning how to preach or feel comfortable ministering before a group. No. My breakthrough came when I left the pulpit and went to the streets to look for the outcasts. Truthfully, I never even knew such people lived in Kiev in any substantial numbers. I had always kept myself with university students and other so-called ordinary people. I didn't know there was a whole world of drunkards, drug addicts, and forgotten people living in the shadows of society. But when I reached out to them, doors opened up wide for ministry. Someone in our church knew of a hospital where drunkards were kept, so I began to go there and beg the doctors to give me one hour to be with the patients. I would bring along Natasha, who testified how she was delivered from alcoholism, and then I prayed for the patients. There my ministry began. God began to honor that sacrifice with supernatural anointing. When I prayed for drunkards and addicts, they would suddenly wake up from their stupor. The power of God would descend on them so strongly that they would be set free in an instant. As a result, they began to come to church. Then their mothers would come asking, What did you do to my son? We spent everything to try and help him. We don't care if you're red, white, or black. You've given us back our son. In one year, the church grew to a thousand people, and it added a thousand people every year after that. We changed meeting places six times in one year, going from east to west to south to north of the city. But it didn't matter anymore. I knew I had the key. If I could love people with this love, I could change the world. In the third year of our existence, the outcasts began to look respectable. They were getting jobs and homes, and nobody could tell they had been drunkards and drug addicts before. People thought they were normal, and so normal people started coming to our church too. Wealthy people joined us, as did the influential and the politicians. Many of them would invite friends without mentioning that I was a black pastor because people wouldn't come if they knew in advance I was from Nigeria. In that society, I was a monkey, a chocolate, even a chocolate bunny. But when people came and felt the Spirit of God, they looked past their prejudices, braved the rejection of their families, and made the kingdom their priority. In my first four years in Russia, I could not get any Europeans saved, but now thousands were coming because our church was touching ordinary people. To this day, serving the least of these is the primary concern of our church. It is our foundation. Is it yours? Take a moment to think, who are the least of these in your world? The janitors, gardeners, service people, cafeteria workers, secretaries around you. Jesus surrounds us in the form of other people. To reach new heights in the kingdom, we must extend our hand to the depths and become a friend of the unwanted and unloved. There, God will begin to transform our character. If God can touch the down and outs of society through us, only then will he trust us with the rich and elite of our nation. That is exactly what happened in Ukraine. God did what he promised, and now people think that we are a church of the rich and powerful. Various business people are attracted to the church. We've formed Club 1000, where we expect to have 1,000 millionaires. So far, over 500 people have registered to be part of the club. Now we have dozens of members in Parliament on different levels in our church. We have Parliament members on regional, city, and state levels. In the city of Kiev, the mayor is a member of our church. The Supreme Court Chief Justice is a member of our church. Also, the church party controls 20% of the city parliament. That is the faithfulness of God. 
If God cannot trust you with the least, he cannot trust you with the greats of the society. We are no longer known as the church of the down and out. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 7 Number 1. The destinies of many people depend on how you respond to God. Number 2. God loves to serve those who are considered least in a society. Number 3. Preaching and church ministries are just tools and instruments you can use, but ministry is really about touching people. Number four, God won't entrust you with the greatest until he can trust you with the least. Number five, my breakthrough came when I left the pulpit and went to the streets to look for the outcasts. Number six, if you can love people with God's love, then you can change the world. Number seven, To reach new heights in the kingdom, you must extend your hand to the depths and become a friend of the unwanted and unloved. Chapter 8. Learn to Fight After our march on City Hall, when the mayor promised us property, we waited for his word to be fulfilled. We waited to hear what piece of property they had given us. We waited and waited. There was only silence. Our church sent representatives back to City Hall to inquire about answers, but they were punted around like footballs from one office to another. Soon we realized we were being swept under the rug. We had no signatures, no paperwork, only the mayor's verbal promise. The city had solved its immediate problem, removing us from the square, but it had no intention of following through on its end of the bargain. We'd been duped. This should not have surprised me. Our church had felt the opposition of the government and media of Ukraine before. Through it all, we learned that we would have to fight many battles. If you think nations are just going to fall into your hands, you're dreaming. Everybody in the world is fighting for power. As kingdom people, we are blessed with the tools that actually work. But it still will be a tough fight. Let me share principles that will help you win the fight. When battle comes. Our church endured its first barrage of criticism in 1997 when we had 3,000 people. The government and media began to take notice of us because of our growing size. They didn't like what they saw, a threat to the national identity, a corrupter of Ukrainian culture, a potentially powerful force in society. They began accusing me of many things, trying to run for president, destroying tradition, corrupting people's minds, dealing drugs, making money through the church, selling alcohol, hypnotizing people, practicing black magic, being an agent of the CIA, and being a cult leader. Imagine being all those things at once. The accusations flew so thick that we couldn't have defended our name if we'd tried. We needed God. The police seized my passport and revoked my official permission to preach as a foreigner. My visa mysteriously got lost, and I was accused of being an illegal resident. They tried to prohibit me from preaching. At one point, the government gave me two weeks to leave the country. During the next several years, I battled 22 lawsuits. I was still on television then, and Orthodox Christians would call and attack us on the air. They said, we don't need black men to talk to us. Blacks only received Jesus 200 years ago. We have been a Christian country for a thousand years. Then the threats on my life began. On one occasion, our ushers were given funeral wreaths and told, prepare your pastor for his funeral. When I received those wreaths, humanly speaking, I was scared. But God assured me from the first moment that it wouldn't amount to anything. 
I remained joyful and calm as though everything were going just fine. In my mind, God had already dealt with the situation. The threat disappeared. One day I received a letter warning me that my helpers and I were going to be victims of an act of reprisal. The letter said that people living in Ukraine would be far better off as drug addicts than as fanatics who believed in God. The letter was full of threats. I had already received several other similar letters from nationalists, gangsters, and drug dealers. These did cause me to worry and at one point became a huge burden for me. I declared a week-long fast, asked the whole congregation to pray, and went to God to talk to him. I said, what's all this about? My ministry is your responsibility. So why has this heavy weight come over me? God impressed on me just to keep on doing what he told me to do. After that, I was able to relax. Before long, the organization that had threatened me got into their own difficulties. Nothing came of their threats. One day, a woman from our church had a vision of a man coming toward me, pointing a gun. She started interceding for me fervently in the spirit. At that particular moment, I was in an underground subway station, and there really was a man coming toward me with a gun. But when he was still a few yards away from me, the gun dropped out of his hand, and before he could pick it up again, I disappeared into the crowd. On another occasion, some people brought guns to a service where I was preaching. That night, God showed three of our believers in advance, in the spiritual realm, who these people were and even where they were going to sit. The meeting proceeded because I had already taken appropriate measures, spiritually and physically, to stem the threat. Our church has its own guards, but this night we also requested that the military place some of its soldiers in the auditorium for the duration of our service. With my own eyes, I saw these three individuals who wanted to murder me realized that they had no chance of doing so, so they got up and left. We never saw them again. For the most part, these attacks did not worry me. I slept as soundly as I ever have, but my wife was concerned that one day she'd hear that I'd been killed. She thought we could leave the country and go back to Nigeria. At least there we would be accepted, she said. We looked like everyone and nobody would notice us, but we never seriously considered moving back to Nigeria. Our promised land was in Ukraine. Gaining Victory There is no victory without battle. Battle is the normal state of affairs for the believer. This is a contested planet. The devil won't just walk away from hard-earned territory. But God uses battle to train us. Psalm 105.19 says, quote, Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. End quote. Before the word of God comes fully into your life, it will try you. It will test you. It will see what your reactions are to the battles. It will see if you are established in the word and the revelation God has made available to you. Before Abraham became father of nations, God tried him. Jacob was tried by Laban when he wanted to marry Rachel. Jesus was tried in the desert before his ministry began. Every blessing, just like a coin, has two sides. Often we think that God's blessings protect us from tests. Just the opposite is true. With each blessing come temptations, tests, and opposition. As soon as God makes you stronger and multiplies your power and influence, you might as well brace yourself for the next wave of tests and battles. Every victory, every success God gives will make others jealous, cause hatred, and invite opposition. The devil will find out about your blessing and will make sure that your blessing becomes your headache. 
But the Bible says, quote, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. End quote. Romans 8, 28. It's important to remember that we are attacked not because God dislikes us, but because the devil doesn't like God blessing us. This is especially true when you discover your promised land and make up your mind to have maximum impact in your sphere of influence. That's why the time of battle, like the time of persecution, is the time to thank and praise God. It's high time to see God's blessing behind our struggles. It's time to get strengthened in faith and know that the blessings of God are stronger than the devil's attacks. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 4. If the devil starts putting obstacles in your way, that means God has a special plan of blessing for you. The devil's attacks are a proof of his powerlessness before us. If you realize this, it will be easier for you to fight the battles. There is no way to greatness without passing through trials by fire. Remember that as soon as Pharaoh saw that the Israelites were multiplying, the blessing turned to the other side of the coin. He began to persecute them. This is the normal sequence of events for God's people. Therefore, when you are thrust into battle, don't complain, but remember that everything works together for good for those who love God. Passing the Test of Battle Some Christians fail the test of battle because they are timid. They claim they are being humble, but they are actually afraid to fight battles because they are not dead to their own ego. They are catering to their desire for self-preservation. They are not living totally for Him. Every battle is a chance to give up. When I arrived in Ukraine, a preacher said to me, You don't need to start a church here because nothing would ever come of it. Do you really think that people would ever come to a church led by you? You can't speak the language fluently, and you have a different skin color. You have no chance of being successful here. In this preacher's opinion, there was a long list of problems obstructing my pathway to success. But I remembered Proverbs 30, verse 24, which says, quote, Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. End quote. When I was a boy, I was curious about ants. I wondered what happened to them in winter and the rainy season in Africa where I grew up. I thought they lived only in the summer and died from the cold rain and snow in winter. But when the next summer came and the ants emerged again, I wondered why the cold and snow couldn't destroy them. I learned that they survived because they had been wise and used the summer to store up their food provision for winter. Ants are small, but they behave in big ways. Like the ant, I have many disadvantages in the circumstances I'm in. I'm dark-skinned in Ukraine, where there are few blacks. I have a strong African accent, and when I speak Russian, it's hard sometimes for people to understand what language I'm speaking. Ukrainian, Russian... Belarusian or English. Once I walked up to a man at a bus stop and invited him to our church. Using a derogatory expletive, he retorted with hatred and disdain, What do you want? But did this stop me? No. I know that one day this man will repent of his response and understand that I wanted to help him. Do I have dark skin? Yes. Do I speak broken Russian? Yes. But the Holy Spirit lives in me. I have the Word of God, the Bible, in my hands. I have a brain that can think, eyes that can see, and a mind that can learn all that I need to know. 
The same applies to you. God does not put us into battles without the proper weapons. In fact, your best weapons may be your own weaknesses. When people tell me, you are emotional and have a hot temper, I answer, yes, that's right. But I use these negatives for good. What a pity that you are not as hot-tempered as me. I'm going to use this temperament for preaching the gospel. This isn't just talk. God really does use it. Your weakness in God's hands becomes your strength. The ants are creatures not strong, according to Scripture, but they are exceedingly wise. Be wise. Don't let size fool you. When the Israelite spies saw the people living in the promised land, they were fooled by their size. They were mortified and called them giants, Numbers 13. In the same way, there are giants on your way to ruling your promised land. There are problems, hardships, resistance, and persecution. Do not be afraid of them because God himself will fight for you. God will sometimes allow problems and hardships in our lives in order to strengthen our spirits and teach us to put our trust in the Maker instead of putting it in our own strength. What is required of us is courage and the spirit of a warrior. We must possess the characteristics of a conqueror to take possession of our land of Canaan. Many believers wander in the wilderness instead of getting into their promised land. They are afraid of hardships and fail to put their trust in God. They know they should study, but fear or laziness overcomes them. They know they have to work hard in the ministry, but they have no desire to fight. The fruits of Canaan belong to those who fight, who put their trust in God, and who walk in obedience to Him. Quote, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. End quote. Isaiah chapter 1, 19 and 20. How Battles End God's favor will often reconcile you with your enemies. Without understanding what is happening, those who sought your life will suddenly calm down and cease being at war with you. That happened in my life. During the period of battle when our church fought against the government and media and shady organizations in society, the volleys of criticism came so fast and relentlessly that we couldn't even answer them all. I was personally disparaged, maligned, and threatened with savage punishment. Then one day I had to meet with the leader of one of the nation's political groups. Everybody had warned me about how dangerous he was. His companions were extreme nationalists, leaving no doubt to how they would treat a dark-skinned man. But I knew the way God's favor and mercy work. When I met and greeted that man, he was taken by surprise. I seized that moment of his confusion and hugged him. We talked for two hours, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He told me about the actions they had planned to take against me in the future, and his enmity melted away. Today, he and I are no more on the opposite sides of the barricades, but one in the body of Christ. The first result of battle is that your enemies become your friends. The next result is flat-out victory. When the crescendo of outrage at our church reached a high pitch in society, the government dispatched a team of psychologists, doctors, and folk practitioners to observe our services. They wanted the experts to prove I was manipulating people. Instead, the team produced a certificate giving the church a clean bill of health. I took that certificate, framed it, and put it on the wall of my office. It's a war trophy. 
Three years after the battle started, I had won every lawsuit brought against me. I was not deported. The church did not shut down as the government had hoped. In fact, we continued to grow in quality, quantity, and reputation. God sent influential politicians to our church, and 50 members of parliament pledged their support to me in a letter to the president and attorney general. Our period of greatest battle coincided with one of our periods of greatest growth. That's the third result. You will reap positive benefits for a long time afterward. Not only did God enhance our reputation in the country because of all the discussions about us, but in the midst of battle, we also started several practices that became crucial to our spiritual health and the future. The most important of these are the fasting and prayer retreats we started holding twice a year in 1997. They continue to this day. Twice a year, in July and December, I gather one to 2,000 liters for prayer and fasting for 10 days. Believers are taught to wait upon God in prayer and fasting for an average of 10 to 12 hours daily. As a church, we agree that these retreats form the backbone of all our efforts. They help us shift from church as usual to having an impact on Ukraine. The fourth lesson about battles is this. There's always another one on the horizon. Our church still faces battles. Just a few months ago, a member of Russia's parliament told the Wall Street Journal that our church is, quote, an alien force that must be stopped, end quote. He said, there is no question they, evangelical churches, are a tool of the U.S. He would like to see new laws limiting the activities of churches like ours. Another current battle involves Russia, which is unhappy with our church's influence on Ukrainian politics. Recently, a new mayor was elected in Kyiv. He is an outspoken member of our church. This angered the Kremlin. Soon, a primetime Russian television talk show invited me to be their guest, but when I arrived in Moscow for taping, border guards at the airport told me my visa had been revoked. The program aired without me and a panel of psychologists and lawmakers accused me of zombifying people and illegally practicing medicine. Am I worried about this? No. The bad publicity only raises our profile in the region, and anyway, it's too late for Russia to stop me. I will outlast them, and one day my visa will be restored. When our church faces major challenges, I always pray that the Lord would not shorten our battle, but teach us how to fight. If you haven't yet attained the results you want in battle, then pray for the pressure to continue until you have learned what to do. After marching on City Hall, we realized that our church was being ignored and that we wouldn't get land to build on after all. In spite of our growing stature in Ukraine, the government still did not consider us a force to be reckoned with. We found ourselves at another crossroads. Would we allow the government to ignore us and go back to the way things were? Or would we take to the streets again? We decided that we must honor God's word to us. We would disobey again and return to the streets in protest. We would fight the new battle and show them that the people of a country cannot be ignored. This time, we would march in much greater numbers. The lesson had been learned. To do nothing is to come to nothing. God was not answering my prayers to miraculously resolve our sanctuary problem. Instead, he was taking us on a journey to bring permanent change to our corner of the planet. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 8 Number 1. Battle is normal as you move into your promised land. 
It means God is going to bless you if you persevere and stand your ground. Number two, there is no victory without battle. The devil won't just walk away from hard-earned territory. Number three, God uses battle to train us. Number four, with each blessing come temptations, tests, and opposition. Number five, it's important to remember that we are attacked not because God dislikes us, but because the devil doesn't like God blessing us. Number six, God does not put us in battles without the proper weapons. Number seven, God will sometimes allow problems and hardships in our lives in order to strengthen our spirits and teach us to put our trust in the Maker instead of putting it in our own strength.